0: Welcome to Behave, the behavioural science podcast where we discuss, explore and aim to showcase the practical benefits of laying behavioural insights to deliver more effective marketing results and business growth. Hosted by Pedro Martins, a director at Total Media, the behavioural planning agency. Remember to rate us on wherever you listen to podcasts and for any questions, feedback or requests for future topics, please email us at podcast at behave.co.uk. For more information on anything discussed in the episode and useful downloads, please visit behave.co.uk forward slash podcast. Welcome to Behave, the podcast that aims to showcase practical business benefits through the application of behavioural science to your marketing. Exploring the bias in the Choice Factory, I'm joined by the author Richard Chotten and Will Hamlin-Lloyd and today we're going to be talking about price relativity. Richard, tell us a bit more about the research around this bias. So price relativity
1: is the idea that Consumers don't have a fixed conception about what is good or bad value. You know, they don't have a single benchmark they refer all products back to. But instead, because that, that kind of cross-category calculation would be, would be very complex. So what they do, and this often happens in, in, when people are picking or when they're deciding, they replace a complex cal- calculation with a much simpler one. And the simpler calculation is, how much did I pay for something similar in the past? If I'm being asked to pay more, this new thing's bad value. If I'm being asked to pay less, this new thing is good value. So benchmarking? Yes, but it's, it's benchmarking on a category or comparison set specific basis. So why that's of interest to marketers is it means that if you can change the comparison set people have in their minds that they're comparing your product to, if you can change that set, you can change their willingness to pay by orders of magnitude. Now, lots of brands have done that in the last 20 or 30 years, seeing Red Bull do it, Craft Beer's currently doing it, but I think the best example is still Nespresso. So if you think back to when Nespresso launched, a lesser team than Nestle would have probably just stuck all their coffee granules in a in a bag, a half kilo bag, and sold it on the shelves of Sainsbury's or Tesco's. Now, if they had done that, if Nespresso had done that, and they still charge the same per gram price they do today, a 474 gram bag of Nespresso would cost between about 50 and £60. Now, there is no way on earth any right-minded consumer is going to buy a £50 bag of coffee. No one's going to push aside a £10 bag of Dow Egg Butts away and take home from Sainsbury's a £50 bag of coffee. But what they did so brilliantly was employ, employ this idea of price relativity. They recognised they didn't have to uh, launch in that way. They didn't have to compare themselves to roast and ground coffee. So what they did was launch in pods. A pod gives you a cup size serving, and then as soon as people think of cups of coffee, their comparison set shifts. It becomes um, Starbucks or Cafe Nero. So suddenly, the 50 pence that Nespresso want for a lungo pod of coffee looks remarkably good value compared to the three quid that Starbucks want for a flat white. But 50p for a pod, um, 50 pounds for a bag, is exactly the same per gram price. One feels... A bargain one feels a rip-off. So that is price relativity.
0: Rich, that's definitely one of the most famous case studies I've heard demonstrating that bias. What about you, Will? Can you give us one of your favourite examples?
2: Uh, one of the ones I like that, again, on that yeah, extent to which you see the price mm. going up so much by changing the comparison of the set, was actually with uh, Tahitian black pearls. So I think in the 1970s, an Italian diamond dealer called Salvador took them over to New York to try and sell them. Uh, and pretty much he couldn't sell a single one. No one thought they looked good. No one thought they were had any value. They were just these small black pearls. He then asked a friend of his, um, a jeweller called Harry Winston, to feature them in a Fifth Avenue store window, surrounded by diamonds and other incredibly expensive jewellery. And within that context, people thought the black pearls were obviously worth a fortune and were themselves an incredibly rare uh, and valuable item to own. Uh, And so where a year before they had been worthless, after they were stored in a... or presented in a context alongside diamonds, they became worth a fortune. Uh, And they were being sold in expensive stores all around New York and eventually up and down the country, making Salvador a fortune because of the context of where he presented this new product uh, for the first time.
0: Amazing. I mean, it also works the other way, so those are making things more expensive, but also can we work to make things look better value? I mean, I remember, and uh, I probably got completely wrong, but I think it was either Bentley or Rolls-Royce wanted to sell more cars. And they instead of selling it at car shows, they sold it at yacht shows. Yeah,
1: I think I think think you're right. I think it might be Rolls Royce. I think uh, I read that uh, in in I think in Rory Sutherland's wonderful book, The The Wiki Man. Yeah, and he (laughs) says yeah. I think he has the example of he says, you know, you would think Rolls Royce cars are always going to be expensive, but the one place they look cheap is when they're next to (laughs) a a luxury super yacht. And it's the brilliant thing about these biases that when you identify the underlying point. It doesn't just have to be applied in that one specific example. You can apply it in a whole different range of categories or, or contexts. I mean, the other one that I love at the moment is is Seedlip, oh, yeah. which has been bought by Diageo recently for an unspecified amount, but presumably millions of pounds. Now, I love that because they do everything they can to make the comparison set craft gin. So the design of the bottle it's in the spirits aisle of the supermarket it's referred to on the label as a non-alcoholic spirit so the 25 quid that they want for a 70 centiliter bottle looks reasonable value because people have this benchmark of 30 pounds for a craft gin in their mind but you could imagine an alter- alternate kind of universe where the uh, entrepreneur behind seedlip had just labelled it as it is. It's a cordial, it's an adult cordial. And if that had been sold next to bottle green or Kiora um, or Ribena, there is no way on earth anyone would pay 25 quid. I mean, you'd struggle to get five or six quid for a bottle.
0: I mean, that's amazing, isn't that point, can you imagine the sale instead of retailers? <laughs> yeah. We've got this cordial, we want you to try 25 pounds. <laughs> yeah. I think we can do it. <laughs> Which is amazing, though, because
1: if people tasted it blind, you know, you could have exactly the same liquid, exactly the same, you know, Chemicals and physical constituents in a glass. One, if you pitch it against non-alcoholic spirits, you you call it a non-alcoholic spirit. It's worth 25 quid. If you call it a cordial, it's worth five or six pounds. So it's it's the creation of a phenomenal amount of of value if brands use it use it creatively.
2: Yeah, it's amazing. And Will, so I think one of the interesting things there is quite a lot of the examples we've talked about. I think it will come on to advertising relevance as well, is when you're introducing a product to a category or you have a new product development, it can actually work for existing products if they make changes to how they're framed or where they're sold. So there's a a famous example that's talked about by Dave Trott, um, which is Jacob's Mallows, which are a kind of uh, chocolate marshmallow uh, that you can buy and eat. And they were stored alongside the chocolates. Uh, and a planner from their agency went in and saw people picking up the mallows and comparing them and seeing that they were much more expensive than the chocolates that they were around and putting them back on the aisle. They then suggested that they put them into the cake aisle instead of chocolates. And what happened was when people picked them up and compared them to the cost of the items around them, they actually went from being an expensive chocolate to a cheap cake and <laughs> sold a lot more because of the fact that their comparison to things around them was made them look cheaper. Uh, I think that's a really powerful effect. It it also works in how you frame a product. So uh, I remember the Arts Fund um, tried to shift itself, um, and what they did is they went from uh, saying that you could support the arts and you get some free membership to saying you'll get free membership to lots of places, and the benefit is that you support the arts. And when people were hearing support the arts and some other membership benefits, they were thinking, how much do I pay for charity? And it's not that much, and they weren't prepared to do it. But when they heard that it was membership to art institutions with free visits and the benefit of supporting the arts, they thought, well, how much am I prepared to pay for my entertainment for days out for things to do? It's a far higher amount. And they actually saw, when they made this change from 2010 to 2011, they more than doubled the amount of people who had memberships from just under 16,000 to just under 14,000. That's phenomenal.
0: Wow. And I assume that this can only be applied to the start of a product life cycle? I think you've probably got
1: more licence to apply it right at the beginning because people don't have any assumptions about the price. You know, once they start building up assumptions then it becomes a little bit hard to shift. It doesn't make it impossible, it makes it a little bit harder. But uh, a related bias, it's not exactly the same, but a related bias that has been shown to work with existing products is um, uh, extremeness aversion. So there's a lovely experiment. There's a great book called Decoder by Phil Barden. And in that, my favourite part of it, he tells about an experiment by an agency called Mountain View. And Mountain View set up this bar and they sell two beers. Let's call it Carling for a pound and Budvar for two pounds. And when they do that, about two-thirds of people buy Budvar, one-third buy Carling. They then introduce a third beer, say Tesco Value Lager for 20 pence, and no-one buys Tesco Value Lager, but now they see the ratio between Budvar and Carling changing. So it's about 50-50 now. And then the final version, they get rid of Tesco Value Lager they replace it with a very high-end beer, Cronenberg Blanc, for £4. And again, because it's on the extreme, people don't buy it, it's very expensive, only 10% of people buy Cronenberg Blanc. But again, the key thing is the proportion buying Carling and Bubvar, that changes. Now, no-one buys Carling, and 90% buy Bubvar. Now, what they argued was when people are picking their lager or their drink, part of the reason they choose a particular beer is the inherent characteristics of that beer but part of it is the context it's being picked in the its relative position in a lineup of of other drinks and what they argue is people are drawn to the middle option because they worry if they're choosing very quickly that maybe the cheap options going to be tacky and they might look uh, mean by buying it but they also worry the expensive option might be overpriced and they might look like a show-off. So people gravitate towards the middle option. So that's of interest to brands because if you change the other items that you're being compared to, you can shift people to be prepared to pay slightly more. So imagine you're an insurance brand and you've got a you know, value offering and you've got a premium offering and you want more people to buy the premium offering because it's a very high margin. Well, one way to do that is to introduce a super premium offering, and then suddenly you'll benefit from extremist aversion. Because what was your once your <laughs> your kind of more expensive option is now the much more palatable middle option.
0: So it's like you, you have a silver, a gold, platinum. You're more likely to get people to buy the,
1: the gold. Exactly. If you have silver and a gold, there's probably going to be split between the the two. If you introduce the platinum, you'll get a greater proportion buying gold. I was,
0: I was going to ask. I mean, uh, the, the Economist did something similar, right, with their subscription base. It's quite an old study. And Will, you've got a couple of examples from your side.
2: Yeah, a couple of interesting examples, actually, of uh, in the real world of, of clients I've worked with. One was JJB, uh, which was a sports retailer, um, admittedly an insolvent sports retailer, so <laughs> a very strong example. But they stocked a range of football boots, um, and they stocked Nike football boots, And they told a story of Nike, asked them, why do you stock our £140 football boots? In the whole history of all your retailers, you've never sold a single pair of this £140 football boots. And JJB said, because if we don't stock the £140, no one will buy the £100 football (laughs) boots. No one will come into our store and pick the most expensive. It feels extravagant. But we can make people buy the £100 one by stocking them next to the £140 one. Um, In a more day-to-day situation, I think we've all in media agencies experienced this effect when you ask media owners for ideas and you can see you get back a cheap option, a reasonable option, and then the no one is ever (laughs) going to pick this extravagant (laughs) option that they've put there so that people pick the middle option. I I don't know what
0: you're talking about. (laughs)
2: Um, and, And you see that, that kind of effect of... They've added that not because they expect you to pick it, but because it makes you pick the middle option um, and is an incredibly effective way to do that. Which then gets you to the point of, like JJB, you've got to
1: be measuring this in the right way. Because the the obvious thing to do is when you're weighing up the, the value of all the different items you... You stock, look at the immediate direct income they generate. And those, you know, to to a literal person, those £140 boots would have generated nothing, and therefore you get rid of them. What you need to do is measure the effect on the entire range, and that doesn't happen enough. So, for behavioural science ideas to be embedded and run regularly, you need to make sure you have a, a
2: sophisticated measurement approach. This is the danger of procurement, who come in and go, well, we're going to strip out everything that makes us money. I think Rory Southern would often say that (laughs) procurement (laughs) are the sort of people that would go into a strip bar and get rid of the strippers. (laughs) Uh, Because they're just a high cost and they don't make any money, not recognising that there's a wider benefit. And that's true of JGB and expensive Mm. options that you need. Um, And there's a similar thing that was done, I think, with... uh, It's slightly different, but with Tesla, release their expensive options first because when they come out with the other ones, they look like a premium brand, the others look better value. So sometimes you present a wider range because of what it says about you as a company. It's amazing. I'm going to go off on a tangent, but
0: it's um, very topical because what you're talking about is almost brand building and performance. And you're saying, well, actually, you can measure this, and you think that's where the value is, but the brand is doing so much more that's unseen that you have to, to your point, make sure you've got a robust measurement system to make sure you're measuring both. Yeah. One of the things that you talk about is trying to anchor that price. So, um, and, uh, well, you mentioned a
2: couple of examples and a couple of clients that you've done that for recently. Can you can you give me a more? Well, it's interesting. I think we were talking so far about quite literal ways of anchoring mm. the price. Nespresso, kind of saying what category they're in. Jacob Mallow's moving to the cake aisle. One thing working in media is that the media you use can implicitly communicate what sort of brand you are. So... Uh, An example study to begin with was Kinetic uh, ran a study with watches uh, and they put watches either up on a massive billboard or on six sheets and asked people to estimate the price of the watch. And when they saw it up on a massive billboard, they thought it was a more expensive watch and on average rated it as £450 more expensive. Now, this is important because where you appear in media will communicate the sort of price category and range that you exist in and therefore can communicate either the premiumness or non-premiumness of your brand and what category you should be in. I think that's really important for when we launch brands. So one example we have is uh, launching uh, something called Young's Catch, which is a fish service of Young's Fish delivered to your house every week. Um, Now that's important because not only do we want them to communicate literally the price comparison, which is with things like Gusto and HelloFresh, by saying they exist in that category, we also want to communicate it with the type of advertising that we do. We don't want to be seen in cheaper places, run a lot of very efficient digital, because it will communicate that it's not premium. And so we've said that actually there's a real value in the first time people see your brand, seeing it in premium placements, high-quality ad placements, because that will communicate that it is premium, that it sits alongside HelloFresh and Gusto, not sits alongside cheaper FMCG brands.
0: Nice. Excellent. Uh, have you got anything to add to that, Rich?
1: Well, again, only the point of if that is the recommendation, then you need to make sure the the measurement, measurement approach is tailored to fit with that. Because the danger is often people will measure what's easy to measure and easy to collect. So that will be the immediate sales, the immediate clicks, the immediate views. That subtle approach of, of kinetic probably won't pay back on that short term immediate basis, so you you 've got to also, in tandem be collecting data on you know price sensitivity and um, you know willingness to pay so if you don't do that you'll end up dropping those uh, expensive media from the plan because they feel like they're a um, a nice to have whereas actually they 're crucial in 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 reducing price sensitivity and boosting willingness to pay
0: very fair point now coming up to the end of this podcast so um just take from what i've taken from me is that our perception of value is relative and as with most biases applicable across all sectors from charities to fmcg so anchor well and consider where your brand appears whether that's in the media or the format that it uses so that implicit value to your product or service is well received and think about your comparison set and finally start small test and learn, and iterate. If you want to win a signed copy of Richard Chotton's book, please remember to rate us on whatever platform you're listening to. And we'll pick a winner at the end of every week. Will, Richard, thanks again, and until next week. This podcast is brought to you by Total Media, the behavioural planning agency, an innovative approach to behavioural insights to deliver more effective marketing results and business growth.